Well, welcome this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Michael, and my wife and Ali are the pastors here. We have five kids and a dog and two guinea pigs, and they, we bought two boys, but one of them's pregnant, so <laughs> now we're about to have a whole lot more guinea pigs. If anyone wants a guinea pig, we're selling them for 50 bucks each. Shucks. <laughs> <laughs> Israel's pretty convinced that there's some money to be made here, so um, if he starts hitting you up at some point for some guinea pigs, yeah. He's like, I could employ the little girls, and we could sell guinea pigs. I'm like, no way. Anyway, um, there's a little wager going on also about what week Zeke will make it up onto the stage, so um, if you're unsure, um, see Ali uh, to put in your bet. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> why don't we pray? <laughs> Good, oh, I was about to say good morning. Well, good morning, God. It's great to, uh, to be here with you. Now, Father, we just thank you uh, for, for your goodness. Father, we thank you that as we open your word this morning and we hear it, we thank you that, that as we hear it, we receive it. Father, I pray that, that Holy Spirit, you would lead us into truth this morning because we don't just want to be hearers of the word, but, but people who, who represent you well and live out your word to the world around us. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you this morning, come and speak truth to us. Us. I pray if that offends us, then let it be. Father, I pray that, that as we receive your word this morning, life would come into us, that we would see that this gospel is worthy of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're about to do. Amen. 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 Awesome. Great job as well, reading. Rachel and Cheryl, awesome. Thank you. Um, just a, a quick reminder, uh, questions, if you have any questions, you can uh, send them through to the number that will pop up on the screen, and uh, if we have time, I will um, try and answer some of those. A uh, couple of other real quick things, I just wanted to thank Doug. Doug, where are you? La uh, last week, you may have come in and seen that the entrance was all beautiful outside and beautifully done. Doug came down during the week and just did that. Um, he saw that it was a need and just came down and did it, and so thank you, Doug. It was, yeah looked amazing. Um, yeah, and just uh, one other notice before we get started. Uh, in a couple of weeks, um, we'll be having just an open leadership and vision night. Um, I haven't picked a date yet, so I'll let you know. I haven't even told Sarah about this uh, or anyone else, uh, but planning on doing that in a few weeks' time. I, I just really have been wrestling. To be fair, over the last year, I haven't actually run any sort of leadership nights apart from just our elders uh, meeting together, but I, I've been wrestling with what leadership looks like uh, as a church going forward in and in our, our society and in 21st century uh, society. And so I've been wrestling with that, uh, and so I feel like I've got something to, that could add value, and so uh, that'll be coming up. So I'll let you know uh, when that will be. All right, so we're, we're looking at uh, Philippians. So we're starting our series on Philippians. I know uh, recently we did a series on James, and we had such great feedback from that. We thought it'd be really good just to do a series on a book. Uh, every term we'll do uh, a topical series and then a, a series on a book. So uh, next term we are going to be looking at um, sexuality and the gospel, and that is going to be a really, really great series. Looking forward to, uh, to preaching on that. So... Um, if you have questions, what I want to do with that series is really uh, scratch where you're itching. So if you have questions, uh, there is going to be uh, an anonymous, anonymous uh, however you say that word, form, uh, that you could, it'll come out in the emails. You can fill out questions um, and you don't even have to put your name on it. How great is that? So, and that'll, that'll sort of help let me know where we should head with that. 
So, so we're looking at the book of Philippians. Uh, there's two reasons why we're doing a series on Philippians. Uh, the, the first reason is that we, we want to open the scripture, open this letter to the church of Philippi and see what, uh, what, what we can take from it, what we can glean from it, uh, what, what, we can, uh, what the Holy Spirit can reveal to us. But also, I want to also help us as a church engage with scripture well. Uh, and so hopefully as we journey through this, you'll, you'll pick up on, on how we actually engage uh, with Scripture so that we are equipped as a body not just for me to be able to tell you what to think, but actually to know how to think and how to engage with Scripture in a, in a healthy way. Um, so uh, one thing I'd just like to start with is this idea that every human problem requires a theological response. Well, that, that's my opinion anyway, that every human problem re- requires a theological response, that the Word has a redemptive solution to every human problem. But how we actually engage with Scripture will determine whether we are reading ourselves into the story or into the Scripture or whether we are in fact being formed by the Word through the Holy Spirit. So our, our primary approach when, when we approach Scripture should be one of this, that, that it is primarily not about me. Primarily, it is, it is about Jesus. And, and it, I mentioned a few weeks ago this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. If we approach the Scripture with that view, then we're going to read ourselves into every story, and we're going to make us the center of Scripture. But we are not the center of the Bible. Jesus is the center of the Bible. So, so we need to understand primarily that the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. Right? We are not the original audience of the Bible. So when we look at the letter to the church in Philippi, we have to understand primarily the church in Philippi were the original audience. And so we must ask the question first, what did it mean to them back then? And then we can ask, what is its significance for us in the here and now? So every time we open scripture, we are actually opening an invitation. It's like a letter. We're opening an invitation. It's an invitation to see the intended shape of our lives in Jesus. It's an invitation to be shaped and formed by the spirit of the word, an invitation to live as Christ, as we'll see in this book, an invitation to see our own stories as lived out expressions of Jesus' story. So every time we open the scripture, we are being invited as believers into a new story. A story that is not shaped or formed by our past, but as we submit our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, we have been shaped and formed into a new story, a better story, a better story, a more profound story, a more beautiful story, the story of Jesus. So let's have a look at this, uh, at this book. So uh, firstly, um, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to, uh, to the church in Philippi who were actually his close friends. Um, the Christians in, in Philippi um, were actually his close friends. And uh, so Paul was writing this letter from Rome and he is under house arrest. So some people might say that he was in prison. Uh, he wasn't in prison as we might think of. He, he was uh, renting a house and a guard was uh, basically there guarding him. He was under house arrest uh, in Philippi. Um, and uh, he was, uh, the, yeah, so, and he was waiting basically on to be brought before Caesar and he was on trial. Um, so the church in Philippi was founded by Paul about 11 years before he wrote this letter. Uh, and it was actually the first church that was established in, in the European continent. And interestingly, the very first convert in the European continent in Philippi was a woman called Lydia. I thought that was pretty cool. And so Paul's letter to Philippians has like, it's kind of like Paul's greatest hits. 
hey, there's lots of like really good one-liners that are like Paul's greatest hits, and we we butcher them. <laughs> you know, like we take them completely out of context often. Um, you know, uh, things like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and then we think that means that we can literally do all things. But we, we'll look at the context when we get to chapter four. Uh, <laughs> um, I like to say that we can do all things to reverse taken out of context. Um, anyway, so it's easy for the readers of Paul to like kind of latch onto these one-liners, but it's really important that we look at the context, and that's what we're we're doing um, this morning. Often when Paul is writing a letter, it's important that we understand he is responding often to a letter that's written to him. So, and we don't often, we don't get to see that letter, uh, but often he's responding to that. And sometimes you'll find that he's, he's quoting what they have said. Uh, back then they didn't have quotations, but a real uh, classic one uh, is in Corinthians where Paul says uh, that uh, freedom means that I can do anything I want, but I say I would never do anything that will enslave me. The, the first bit is actually what they said to him. They are saying, well, freedom means we can do whatever we want. Paul's actually responding and saying, well, actually, you should never do anything that enslaves you. Um, so it's really interesting. Paul's, it's like a, a going back and forth uh, with these letters. But it appears anyway with the church in Philippi that actually uh, Epaphroditus has come as a messenger rather than a letter. Anyway, all right, we're done with the history lesson. It's important. Um, so what problem is Paul bringing a kingdom perspective and solution to? That's a really important question we've got to ask when we open any letter. What is it that he is responding to? Because there's usually always a problem. 99% of the time he is responding to a problem of disunity. He's usually addressing some sort of disunity within the church. And you'll see in Philippians in chapter 4 that there is some disunity going on that he's trying to address. Right, so let's, um, let's jump into it, eh? So in verse 3, we, we see this. I, I, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who has began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, the thing that first jumped out at me when I read this is that um, Paul was really, really intentional about his prayer life. That's the first thing that I noticed, is Paul was really intentional about his prayer life. He, he, he prays consistently and specifically for the believers in Philippi. And, and I, was, uh, I was quite challenged by this this week, and even thinking about in my own squad, with the guys that I meet with regularly, how often am I specifically and intentionally praying for them? And so we've, uh, this week I said, guys, I want to know specifically what you need because I want to specifically and intentionally pray for you by name each week. And I think if we could, if we could take that, imagine that as a body of Christ, as, a, as believers here at Awaken, if we could know that every single one of us were being prayed for specifically and intentionally by someone. I wonder what our lives would look like. I wonder if things would start to shift in our own lives if we took on that kind of mentality when it comes to prayer. Now, this is why it's important for us to, to gather in, in small groups and squads so that we are able uh, to, to actually give this to one another. So a, as we move on, we, we see in verses 12 um, something really interesting. He says this, and, and we start to get a grasp of Paul's perspective here on the way that he looks at things. You could almost say that Paul kind of like always has this always looking on the bright side of life kind of mentality. Like if you look through Philippians, it's just this constant 
like recognition of joy, like I rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Like he's always, there's always this aspect of joy coming through, um, but we know that Paul is a, is a man who is suffering for the gospel, yet he continually has this perspective of joy. It says in verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So, so Paul has discovered a profound truth. He has discovered that, that everything considered valuable in life is nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ. He, he has discovered that actually Christ alone is worth living for. His imprisonment is actually bringing confidence and courage to the church in Rome, and people are actually becoming more confident because of his imprisonment. And actually, this is a phenomenon that has happened throughout history. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, um, down south, and uh, one of our pastors in our movement, uh, his name is Arvish, um, and he is from India, and he's um, pastoring one of our churches in Wanganui. Uh, but I was chatting with him one of, the, one of the nights, and so he comes from central India, which is uh, the most persecuted place uh, in India, and he was telling story after story after story of, of persecution that he has faced, that his church has faced in India, and uh, you know, he's been stoned twice, uh, not with the drugs, but actually with literal rocks, um, and uh, he would say that, that every time that there was persecution on the church, uh, they would have things like this, like one, he said one Saturday night the music team are practicing uh, in, the, in one of the buildings that they had and a rock comes through the window with a note attached to it and it says, uh, if anyone turns up here tomorrow, they're dead. He said it was the biggest service they've ever had. More people came the next day than any other day. He said whenever there is persecution, the church grows. And Paul is picking up on this here. He's saying, actually, my imprisonment, my persecution is advancing the gospel. The church is growing because of it. Uh, Arvish was telling me that, that uh, when, when the gospel first started to spread through India, it was like, so contagious that the government didn't know what to do about it. They figured out the only way to stop the gospel was to stop persecuting the church. Think about that. So then Paul picks up in verse 15 on the fact that some Christians are actually starting to use his imprisonment to further their own agendas. And he says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So some are seeing Paul's imprisonment as actually, uh, to actually ad, ad, like advantageous to them. They're using Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity for themselves. And so in our current society, um, you know, we, we have this performance and achievement mentality, we're a culture of competition and comparison. It can actually become really easy to see someone else's downfall as an opportunity for ourselves. Matt Chandler, who wrote a commentary on Philippians, he said this. He said, there are some in the church who are very good at presenting the appearance of humility and sacrifice, but all for selfish and vain reasons. They enjoy their reputations more than they enjoy the gospel. Well, listen to Paul's perspective. He says this, but what does it matter? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. See, Paul's perspective on ministry is always kingdom versus empire. While, while other people, he is noting that there are other people that are using his imprisonment to actually advance their own kingdoms and their own empires, his focus is on the kingdom of God alone. 
And I, I found it really interesting that Paul seems to be so disconnected from comparison and competition that he sees no need to go after the people that are doing things for the wrong motive. He sees no value in it. I have dis- you know, and I have discovered for myself that, that I often point out the wrong motives in others because of my own insecurities. See, Paul doesn't see the others taking advantage of his imprisonment as taking anything away from him at all. He he has so given up his own life for the sake of Christ that that even when people are taking from him, he doesn't even notice it. You know, we we talked about this in the the series with James, that, that James is saying, hey, look, this comparison and competition is causing you to eat and devour each other. Paul was literally being eaten and devouring by brothers and sisters in Christ at this very moment, and he doesn't even notice or care. I found that really interesting. See, for Paul, his life is defined by the life and presence of Jesus alone. That's it. That's all he seems to care about. And we see this as, as we carry on. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And he says this in verse 21, listen to this. For to, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going, to, going on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. See, for Paul, his life is defined by the life and presence of Jesus. So for him, to be executed is gain. He actually has this perspective that if I am to continue living, then that will be the sacrifice. If I am to continue living, that will be the sacrifice. When I I was um, talking to Arvish, he said that they celebrate persecution. They celebrate it. It's almost like they don't want us to pray for less persecution for them. No, they actually say, no, this is good. This is good for the gospel. (laughs) Crazy, eh? See, for him, he gets this idea that to live means to suffer. To live means that I give up my life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others. To live means to give himself. When I was younger, um, I, uh, growing up as a teenager, I really struggled with uh, temptation. I, I struggled with, uh, you know, people teasing me and all of that sort of stuff through high school. Um, my nickname through, right through high school was Moses. <laughs> Don't know why, but that stuck with me. Sometimes I still see friends from way back and they're like, hey, Moses. Uh, but anyway, so like, I, but I actually had this thought. I used to think this all the time and I used to tell my parents and tell, uh, tell other people, I would say, do you know what, if someone pointed a gun to my head and said, do you believe in God, I would absolutely say yes. For me, the hardest thing is to live this out. To, to, actually, to actually die for Christ, for me, it felt like the easier out. But to actually live this thing out, that felt like such a sacrifice. And so I can see what Paul was saying here. I can hear what he is saying. He's saying to live as Christ, to die as gain. And the truth is this, is that we can bring nothing but to the table but our surrendered lives. All we can bring is a life submitted to God and to one another. That's all we have to bring. Uh, this morning in prayer, it just came out this, uh, the, the passage of Scripture that talks about God being the, the potter and that we are the clay. 
All God needs is just someone to just sit on the table and say, mold me, shape me. That's it. That's all God needs. He just needs a yes, a submitted life. Uh, uh, my experience of transformation um, through, the, through the good news of Jesus, through, God, through the gospel, was directly proportional to my willingness to submit my life to the gospel. Let me say that again. My, my personal experience of transformation is directly proportional to my willingness to submit my life to the gospel. See, the truth is there's always something you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that life is a gift and can choose to see the beauty and grace in any life circumstance. See, Paul's perspective is this. He said, while I am sitting in prison, I will not let my circumstance become my own personal prison. And we can imprison ourselves with our circumstances and we miss what's going on around us, that we actually have opportunities every day to one another, one another. In verse 27, Spider-Man, looking good, buddy. <laughs> verse 27, he goes on to say this. Now, now, let's just remember he's flowing one thought after another here. And so in verse 27, he says this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, what's he saying? Look, whether I die or live, the reality is you get to live. I'm facing death here. I don't know when I go to trial before Caesar, I could end up, uh, I could end up being set free, I could end up staying in prison, or I could be executed. Whatever happens, you get to live. So live a life worthy of the gospel. He's saying if you're going to bear the name of Jesus, do it in a worthy manner. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, yeah. So it's almost like Paul was is saying, "Like I'm, I'm here awaiting trial. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Whether I die or live, you get to live. So live for Jesus." So the reality reality of this is that that people are watching, eh? People watch our lives. You you may be the only Jesus that people get to meet. You may be the only Bible that they get to read. Paul at one point said, hey, you guys, you are living epistles. You are living letters of Jesus. While some people might get to read a letter from Paul, you are a living letter of what it means to, to live out this life that Jesus has given us. These people are watching. Brendan Manning once said that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. See, to live as Christ means that our lives, our stories are becoming a lived out expression of Jesus' story. And Paul was saying, listen, if you want to live this life, it will cost you. Paul clearly sees that living is the sacrifice. He clearly sees that dying for Jesus is the preferred option for him. To live is to suffer for Paul. And he goes on to say this, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is reminding the believers that they are actually engaged in the same kind of suffering that he is, is going through. So for a believer to live is to put on the display, is to display the life of Jesus. And what does that look like? What does that look like? It looks like humility. It looks like honor. It looks like wisdom and courage. It looks like forgiving the unforgivable, loving the unlovable. It looks like being friends with sinners, sitting with the broken, caring for the poor. It looks like self-sacrificing enemy love. Matt Chandler in his commentary, he said this, so what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It looks like walking with, loving with, and doing life with those who are different from you, knowing that what binds you together is Christ. It looks like dying with Christ to oneself and being raised in Christ to walk in the newness of life with our brothers and sisters. It means living grace-filled lives that grant patience and mercy and gentleness for the spiritual journeys of others and respect for the differences we all bring to the Lord's table. Living a life worthy of the gospel does not mean pretending to be perfect. Instead, it means having the humility to think of others better than yourselves. It means putting self-concern aside to work together, realizing that we are all in process. We'll get, we got questions? No questions? Good. We're running out of time anyway. Um, I, I, one final thought, the music team can come. But I, I just want to point out just one final thing. You know, sometimes when we read, um, read scripture or you might hear me uh, preaching something, I, I've discovered that often people don't always hear what I am saying and often hear what I'm not saying. Um, and I realize also with words that people can have different ideas about words. Dallas Willard said it's not actually what a word means that it's important, it's what people imagine a word to mean that's important. And uh, so what is Paul not saying here? What is Paul not saying? He, he's not saying that, that to live worthy of the gospel is to, is to live up to the gospel, but he is saying to live from the gospel. In, in Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 5, we have a real similar, like Paul basically says the same thing in Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 5. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. See, I believe this. When Paul is talking about living from the gospel, living a life worthy of the gospel, he, he is saying, listen, the gospel is worth living for. The gospel is worth living for. Live for Jesus. But, but the first thing I think that comes to his mind is relationships. When he's saying, like, be, live a life worthy of the gospel, he's thinking about how do you interact with one another. That's what he's thinking about. And, and I know that because you can see it all through all of the epistles. And then in chapter 2, he literally says this. In your relationships with another, one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. 
So he is thinking about relationships, and, and, and what he is not doing is giving us a legalism. Hey, you need to shape up. You need to, you, you know what I mean? Like, you just need to, you're missing the mark, and you need to get to the mark, young man. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this gospel is worth laying your life down for. And he's actually inviting us into this grand narrative of redemptive love, original design and intent, and this gospel of human flourishing. He's saying this is worthy of our lives. Not live up to the gospel, but live from the gospel. Think about it like this. If you could possibly live what the cross produces, then the cross wouldn't be necessary. We live from the cross, not towards the cross. We live from resurrection, not towards resurrection. We live from love, not towards love. We live from acceptance, not towards acceptance. See, we're living out this gospel means that we are living out the death and resurrection of Jesus by participating in his death and resurrection. Whoever loses their life finds true life. We live out of this gospel. It's worthy of our lives. I think fundamentally, as a follower of Jesus, that is the key question that we must ask. Do I believe that this gospel is worthy of my life? That's the key question. And then we give our lives to it, and we're transformed by it. But it, it also will cost us. To live that kind of life will cost us. But it's worth it. This gospel is worthy of it. When this life is worthy of it, the life of Jesus is worthy of your life. That's the invitation Paul is giving to us. Awesome. Music team, where are you? Hey! Awesome. Why, why don't we stand this morning? I, I want to pray. Uh, since we don't have any questions, we'll pray. Father, Father, we just thank you. Father, for who you are. Father, we thank you for your goodness. You are so good. So good. Yeah. We thank you that we, as we open Scripture, that we see you, Jesus. We thank you for your, your redemptive story that you invite us into. We thank you that as we gaze on your beauty, as we gaze on you, that we are becoming who we are beholding. Father, I thank you that you are shaping us, that you are forming us. that we are becoming like you, Jesus, as we gaze upon you, as we live lives that represent you, as we love one another, we are becoming like you. And I thank you that as we do this, the world gets to see what you're like. Father, 
Father, I pray that we would be a church that represent you well. We don't want to just be a church that are good at praising you, good at worshipping you. Just a church that's good at singing about you, but Jesus, we want to look like you. We thank you for what you're doing. We just take this moment to rest, to fix our attention on you, God. to recognize that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. To recognize that you have started a good work in us. And you are the one that is faithful to complete it. Yeah. Yeah, we thank you, God. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. We're just going to take a moment now to gather around communion, to worship as we respond. I just want to encourage us with just a final thought as we, we gather around communion. You know, when we when we look at the Old Testament, you know, what I was talking about earlier, that we don't read ourselves into it, we find Jesus in it. See, the Old Testament is about God's redemptive plan through the people of God in an ancient Near East culture, that very, very different from our culture. As we look at it, we can continually to ask this question: Is it the Word of God? Yes. Is it a good word? Yes. Is it the final word? No. It's Jesus is the final word. And he is very good. He is very good. As we gather around communion, we are invited to a table. We're invited to a table. I love that in Psalm 23, there's this invitation to a table where God sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And so I want to invite you this morning, no matter what you are going through this week, I, I, I want you to have the perspective of Christ, that whatever it ha- is that you have been struggling with, whatever it is that you have been working through, whatever it is that you feel like has been coming against you, I want you to turn your attention away from that and turn your attention to the table that has been set for you in the presence of your enemies. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus is inviting you to have dinner in the presence of your enemies. Imagine how unconcerned you need to be about the enemies to relax and enjoy dinner. But that's the invitation that Jesus invites us to. 
So as we gather around communion this morning, let's imagine that. I want you to imagine the things that you are fighting at the moment. In the kingdom, fighting looks like resting. In the kingdom, fighting looks like resting. So whatever it is you're fighting, put it aside. Sit at the table with Jesus this morning. Put your gaze on him this morning. Yeah. Let's come.